Hey, welcome to the uh, Catalyst 2020 Winter Camp. This is going to be a blast today because we're doing a live podcast with questions from teenagers, and we're going to do the best we can to answer those and get as broad as we can because we know that sometimes when you ask a question, there's more behind it, right? So hopefully we'll cover in the next 30 minutes as many questions as possible to help you deal with uh, teen life and teen culture, okay? So, if, and one real quick, uh, let me cover this. Those of you who would like to share this, it will be on my podcast, it'll be right down there, I'll put it on the credits at the end of the video, and it will be at youthology.com. That's my website, Y-T-H-O-L-O-G-Y.com, it's right down there. And all you'll have to do is go there, and you can rip it, you can rip it off my uh, YouTube, you can rip it off the IGTV, and we're gonna also post this to the Catalyst website. So, uh, and the Oregon Ministry Network also. So there's a lot of different places where you can find this podcast, all right? And our first question is... How do you feel about, like, boys wanting to be girls and girls wanting to be boys? Oh, baby. Okay, so we're opening this thing up with that question. So this is like a gender identity question. This is um, probably... To me, it is the second greatest issue in teen culture. And I say that because I think the number one issue in teen culture is the family, the brokenness of the family. And because really, to be honest, and maybe we'll go there uh, further uh, this morning, if the family is healthy, you can handle anything. Really. So this, this issue of um, identity gender confusion, okay, what I like to call gender stretch or gender imagination, where we, we move beyond male and female um, in, our, in our designation of humanity, okay? So let me say this to answer the question, first of all. Um, why is there such an issue with the sexual revolution today and specifically gender identity? I believe it is because that we have lessened the sanctity of human life, okay? And what I mean by that is this, and this is just not a uh, March for Life thing that just happened to take place yesterday. This is not just about um, the sanctity of human life from childhood or conception. I believe that we are redefining male and female in our culture today because we do not respect the sanctity of human life, even after we're born. Um, the scriptures say in Genesis 1 through 3, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, I'm going to kind of paraphrase them, that God created male and female in his image. And you know this, that uh, even the use of the language of God is uh, both in the male and the female. Like some people are saying, how come God is a male, you know? Well, we know that through uh, the reading the scriptures that he is addressed that way. But there are, there are also um, Hebrew words that fit God in the female sense so that he can relate to the female also, you know what I mean? So don't, don't get freaked out when, when people bring that argument up. But what happens is, 
we begin to do gender imagination or gender stretch, and we as a culture have started to create our own um, designations beyond male and female. Uh, one article that I will allude to, if you want to look this up, is called Owning the Middle. Owning the Middle. It was done on ESPN. It was done on Brittany Griner about four years ago, who happens to be one of the top WNBA players in the world. And they asked her, uh, you know, what is it like to, to be male or, or female? Because, you know, she's in that uh, transgender uh, world. What, what it, and her, this, this was her answer. You know, that's the problem I have. Why do we have to be male or female? Can't we just own the middle? And that's where this whole argument of owning the middle came out. And if you Google it, you can read it on ESPNW, okay, the women's uh, magazine there. And so what happens is because we move away from the biblical definition of sexuality, male and female, and we move into a cultural definition, in other words, however I feel, right? Uh, I, I'm going to stretch this. I'm going to imagine myself a different way. So you have the cultural and the scriptural battling against each other. So I'm not denying that people do not uh, feel that way, uh, do not get sex changes, okay? I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is that is a cultural, personal way of thinking versus a biblical theological way of thinking. And so the, the contention is this. When you have these discussions with people, they feel right because they're not thinking in scriptural in a scriptural framework. You know what I mean? So when you have this discussion with your friends, they're saying, well, you know, it's okay and whatever. And listen, it is okay for them. You don't judge them for that. For them, it's okay. And the best way for you to have those discussions is to give them their, the, uh, give them their designation. Like, in, in other words, listen, okay, that's fine for you. That's fine for culture, but I don't find my morality, I don't find my sex designation, my gender designation in culture. As a Christian, I find it in scripture. And scripture lays it out. <laughs> scripture lays it out as male and female, and there's no confusion. Okay, so hopefully that helps. Next question. What can we teens and kids do with our parents fighting? Oh man. Yeah. How many of you, so I'm gonna do a poll question and then I'll let the audience know, our, our recorded audience know. How many of you come from a home where you have the your biological mom and dad, we call it the the classic family or traditional family, whatever you, you, I know some people like PC, politically correct, we're not supposed to use that or whatever because that's not the classic family now, but how many of you come from a family where your biological mom and dad is in the home and, and married, okay? So look around and help me. I'm gonna say less than half. Raise it high so we can see. For sure, less than half. And uh, agree with me? Definitely. And that's the way it always is. I have never seen it in, in larger settings like this. And, and think about this, we're in a church setting. I've never seen it greater than half or at, you know, 60% or 
So what happens is we have to live with the reality that, um, that marriage is not perfect. Families are not perfect. And so because of the reality of a, of a um, broken home, a blended home, how, whatever you, however you want to say that, right? Because of that reality then, as teenagers, the question is, how do we, how do we redeem that home? How do we make it work, okay? Let me give you two things, because we can't deep dive into these. Although I will be creating a manuscript off this, and it will be on my website, so some of these things that we're saying, I always take these over and record like a manuscript, so you can get into it deeper also, and I do some commentary on it, but anyway, live, so we get some more questions. Um, let me give you two ways that teenagers can redeem their home, okay? Can improve their home. Number one, um, deal with you first, okay? Deal with you first. A healthy child will be able to affect the home better than an unhealthy child, okay? So deal with your anger issues. Deal with... Listen, I know that sounds so like almost cold to say it because you have been hurt and you have been lied to. If you're in that setting where the, the home isn't healthy. Um, and, and, and let me say this parenthetically too with this first area. Just because you come from a home that is blended or broken or not traditional or classic, right? Doesn't mean your home is bad. Some of you come from a home where maybe you were adopted into it or maybe there was divorce early in your family and the whatever parent is in there now is a beautiful situation. Maybe the first, maybe like the first marriage just, it didn't work, okay? It didn't work. But this second one that you're growing up in is, is a beautifully, it's, it's a great setting. So I know that not every blended home is a bad home but not every traditional home is a good one. <laughs> so I get that. So what I'm saying with this first one is, if you want to deal with the issues in your home, okay, whatever it is, especially with this question being a broken home or a blended home, then you gotta deal with you first. Forgive, listen, forgiveness is huge. Okay, you, um, mom and dad are, I'm not perfect. Your youth leaders in here who, who have homes, we're not perfect. I've done things where I've had to apologize to my own kids, okay? So deal with you and you'll be able to deal with the, with the overall, the, the home, okay? Lock away in your bedroom, turn your bedroom into a prayer room, become a worshiper so that you are spiritually healthy to deal with that, okay? Secondly, um, and this, this is gonna sound like maybe even, uh, like more obvious than the first one, but it's gonna be easier than the first one, okay? Number two, if you want to transform your home, you need to begin to pray and fast for your parents. Now, I know that sounds like an out, and it sounds like, oh, okay, well, of course. I mean, I've already done that. No, 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 I take it to a whole nother level because if you pray for them and you fast for them, you never know what the Holy Spirit can do in your home. I've watched it. Some of you in this room have watched it. I can tell you a story. There's a story in my mind right now. If I had the time to take four or five minutes and tell you the story of a teenager in this setting with this question whose home was wrecked. 
who began to do those things, work, work on himself and make himself healthy, got involved in the youth ministry, saw other kids who made it out of wrecked homes, and then began what he did every single morning he would go to his parents' bedroom and put his hand on the door and pray for his parents. Even though they were going through like very difficult times, these were his two biological parents. And within six months, that school year, because we had talked about it in August, and I told him by the end of the school year, if you do this, you watch. His dad had given his heart to Christ, was coming to church and begging his mom to come, and slowly she came by the end of his sophomore year. Just because of laying hands on a door and praying for parents, okay? So, you have to be healthy, and you have to take seriously this command to pray and fast, all right? I hope that helps. Next question. Anyone from, can anyone from any background be born again? Okay, let's let the, let's let the crowd ask, uh, answer that one. Yeah! Oh, yeah, man. Like, simply, I, I have seen the furthest kid in the room come to Christ. Listen, last night, there were several stories in this room. And I don't know, you, you know I don't want to go there necessarily, um, but I spoke to one of you last night, and you would fit this category. And you know who you are at this room. And the youth pastor, know, listen, there are some of you that walked into this weekend, and you would categorize yourself as unreachable. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you some names. Listen, I'm going to give you some names of real people through the years. Andy, who thought he was a teenage werewolf, dressed the whole, you guys know what I'm talking about. You, you've got friends like that. Born again on a Wednesday night, regular youth service, gripped by the grace of God, walked the aisle, and he was drunk that night. 18-year-old senior, walked the aisle, Andy, down on his face, youth ministry, kids all over him because they've been praying for him. Um, Priscilla, oh my, raised by a prostitute mom to be a prostitute herself. 16 years old, already into prostitute, prostitution and giving her income to her mother. Shows up at a convention um, in Nevada, in Las Vegas, Nevada, and gives her life to Christ, gripped with grace and her friends around her. And she got in a car accident the next week and lost her life. But I cannot wait to see Priscilla in heaven. So I, I mean, literally I could go on and on with stories of what I call, okay, last night in the leaders meeting, before we came in here, we did what we call, we, we, did, we were praying, and as I prayed, we prayed for the furthest kid in the room. Because I believe if God can reach the furthest kid in the room, he can reach the rest of us, right? Oh, yes, yes. Okay, how many of you in this room would consider yourself part of that story? Like you were lost, you thought God would never reach you. Raise your hand. Look around, man. I wish we could pan this camera. Look around one. The, man, there's 10 or 12 like right here in the middle. The, okay, there's 50, 60 kids in the room, maybe more. I'm being conservative because I know some people are like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. There were, I'm sure there were 100 hands that went up that you felt the same way as this question. So, yes. Next question. What is the greatest thing God has done for you? Oh. What is the greatest thing that God has done for me personally? Thank you for asking that. That's never been asked before. 
on our podcast. Um, without going into my whole story, uh, my wife passed away four years ago of cancer, and it was the lowest moment of my life. And I've told people this story uh, s several times, but when my wife passed away, and she was so strong spiritually, like one of her last words to me before she went into a coma, uh, and she was in a coma for 18 days and then passed away, the night before she went into a coma, she could barely speak, but she called all of our kids into the bedroom. And my kids at the time were, you know, two, uh, two were married and uh, one, um, my, my youngest was not, but she called them in, gave prophetic words to the kids. And we're all laying on the bed, you know, talking and stuff. Cause we knew it was the last day, a few hours probably. And the kids had left and she told me, she said, God is finished with me. And I said, no, no. No, he's not done with us. And she said, honey, listen to me. I said, God is not finished. God is finished with me, but he's not finished with you. It was like so prophetic in that moment. And I felt like, I go back to this, you know how there are like the most formative moments in your life? Can you think of those? The conversation, the night you got saved or uh, something happened that just turned your formative moments. That was one of the greatest moments of my life. When my wife said to me, she recognized that God was done and her breath was done, but I was not. And it gave me so much strength to go on without her, you know. And so uh, that night she went to coma and 18 days later she passed. And I was laying in bed at 2.30 in the morning, 2.36 in the morning when she passed. And I walked around the bed and I kissed her. And I walked out and I never saw her again. And as I went out, I live in downtown Minneapolis. I'm on the 16th floor of our high rise there. And I walk out and I sit in my prayer chair that I, that I, I, I do all the time. And I sat there and the answer to your question is this moment. From the words that James spoke to me, that he's not done with you until the time, and it was about 18 days, I sat in that chair and kissed her goodbye. The Holy Spirit, filled that apartment and told me, I was with you when you were married. <laughs> and I will be with you when you're single. Isn't that powerful? And I, so the greatest thing that ever happened to me was not getting married. It was not even having children. That's up there. Trust me, that's up there. And grandchildren. Hello. <laughs> the greatest moment of my life was the 18 days from Jane's prophetic word to me to God saying, I was with you when you were married and I will be with you when you're single. That's the greatest moment of my life. That God would be, listen, let me put it in your, life, in your lap. That God would be with us in our lowest moment. Yes. Yes, next question. I love and this. Is like yes, yeah, so suicide. The question was, if you didn't hear that, if someone takes their life, is that a sin? Uh, man, I'm just gonna say no, first of all, okay? But let me then paraphrase that. Uh, let me comment on it. Because I know there are some on, this, on both sides of this issue. And when I said no, some of you in the room, okay, uh, totally disagree with me. 
And you're like, oh, oh no, no. Did you just talk about the sanctity of life and respect for human life and all that, right? Yeah, of course, I did. Um, the reality is, though, that sometimes, and I know not every person that attempts suicide or commits suicide has a mental issue, but sometimes with you cannot just blanket answer a question like this, okay? Because sometimes people are not in their right mind. Sometimes mental, um, mental health is not very strong. There are some of you in this room who deal with mental illness. And, and listen, 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 that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You just have to learn how to cope with that. Coping mechanisms, right? Um, so I'm gonna first of all say, just to get rid of the fear in this question, no, I don't believe that if for some reason you attempted suicide that you have, that necessarily you have sinned and you're going to hell. Especially like if you took your life and it's over, okay? So now let me talk about that. Just, uh, uh, and I don't have to go very long because I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, Satan is a deceiver, okay? And sometimes people operate under deception, okay? And though we may categorize certain things as sin under deception, I believe that there are some moments when deception is not necessarily a sin because we don't know what we're doing and it's not been revealed to us in that setting. And so because people become overwhelmed in a moment and they attempt suicide, they're not in their right thinking, okay? And I believe that grace will cover for that. Um, and then let me say this, that those of you who call that sin, I'll give that to you. Maybe you believe that that is sin, but understand that suicide can be forgiven. Attempted suicide can be forgiven. Oftentimes, those who commit suicide are in a state, whether that's a deception or depression or mental illness, I have spoken to EMTs, first responders, who were there in a moment of suicide attempt, whether real life situations, in uh, their bedroom and had uh, take, shot themselves, who were still alive when the EMTs got there, passed away later, or uh, first responders who rescued a young adult, 20 years old, out of a car that he had driven into a lake to take his life. Doors locked the whole thing, they rescued him. And, and even though in his last moments, the EMTs were outside the window, hearing this young man cry out to God and ask for forgiveness for what he was doing, it, it, he passed even because they couldn't get him out. He passed in that moment. But the, the first responders told me the rest of the story because one of them was a Christian, their first responder. So I have learned this. We gotta stop judging people in that moment because of their depression or deception and start allowing the incredible uh, grace of God. We have to start allowing it to reach people in the last moments of their life when they didn't want to live. For God to reach them, listen, I believe that God's grace goes all the way to the end of your life and he does not necessarily judge you for the single moment decisions that you've made, right? God's grace is bigger than that, especially at the end of life where people will call out to God for repentance. So I hope that helps. I know we're getting around that question. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna put, I'm gonna manuscript on that, maybe put some scripture in there and deal with that a little bit more, okay?
But I hope that helps to take away the sting of that question. Yeah. Next question. Um, so, I kind of hope you That's okay. Um, but I have, I know someone that is a uh, lesbian, and I just wanted to know, what's the best possible way I can not be Wow. I love this. I have a friend who is lesbian, and what is the best possible way for me to bring them to God, drive them to God was the question, to draw them to God, okay? Um, thank you for, for this because the church is not known for this. The church is known for judgment and criticism and being cynical toward, uh, toward sinners, okay? And, and I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm categorizing lesbianism as sin when I say that, but one of the things that we have to understand as the church is that we are the representation of God in culture. We are the representation of God in culture. And to most people who have no concept of Christianity, they get their definition of God by watching us. And so, man, for you as a middle schooler to ask that question tells me a lot about your thinking and that you've not been caught up in that whole judgment and criticism thing. I think that um, people who are caught in the gender dysphoria, I know we don't, we're not supposed to use that word dysphoria because uh, even though science has used it, okay, um, confusion, stretch, gender stretch, gender imagination, people that are caught up in that fascination, okay, are closer, hear me, they are closer than you think to walking away from that lifestyle. I've talked to them. Uh, some of you know my story. My younger brother is gay. Okay, so I deal with this all the time. My younger brother also is the ambassador to Germany. He is the highest ranking gay Republican in government. Richard Grinnell. Some of you, if you know government, you know that name, okay? He is uh, being considered uh, on, in, the, in the next platform. He's be running the campaign for our president now. Um, he's high up in politics, okay? And so I'm, I am often confronted with this question on the street or in an airport or everywhere, in a hotel just a couple of weeks ago. Someone found out who I was and, hey, are you, you know? So what I've learned in my discussions with many people who are in this gender confusion area is that they are closer to walking away from that lifestyle than we believe. So let me give you two things that you can do, okay? Number one, love people unconditionally. Unconditionally. Listen, you can still, hear me, you can still hold to your morality and love people unconditionally. You understand that? You don't have to shed your values at the door of relationship. Did you hear me? You do not have to shed your, your, your Christian values at the door of relationship. Because I believe that if you are truly born again, that you learn to love unconditionally and stop judging people. Because do you understand that we treat people in this, in this sexual revolution struggle... <laughs> We treat people differently that are in that area than we do people who are stealing or lying or gossiping or people who are overweight and, glutton and gluttons. 
We treat them differently than we treat people with this other issue. You know what I'm saying? Learn, number one, to treat people unconditionally without regard to whatever they're struggling with, okay? Secondly, um, go out of your way to get to, un to understand them, to get to know them. Go out of your way uh, in their context. Um, be in their context. Understand the language of their context. Do you know that right now there are 30 plus, and I have, I have posted these on my website. You can read these in my blog. There are 30 plus, I think it's 34 or 35 that I, that I found gender types today in America. It's no longer male and female, you know that. There are 30 plus of them that people identify as. And even the government is having a hard time with the box, right? It, male, female, other, you know, and if people write that in there, it's like, uh, what's that? Well, we just thought of that last month, you know, or whatever. Yeah, so out of Canada, I don't know if you saw these studies, out of Canada, uh, some physicians said that they now can, and this, I think this was two years ago, you can Google this and read the article, Canadian physicians have found now that they think they have created another embryo, another organism that is not male and female, and they can now create a non-gender, a, a neutral gender person. That's insanity, man, right? Because that's not the scriptures. That's not the scriptures, okay? So, uh, number one, um, you have to work on your unconditional love with that this person, individual that you're talking about. And number two, you have to understand their world, understand their thinking, because if you can understand where people are coming from and how they, listen, how they've shaped their uh, meology, I call it, it's not necessarily theology, but how they've shaped their meology and their cultural feelings, if you can understand that, it will be easier to communicate to them. Good? Okay, sweet.